Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Good morning. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation and our Douglas and Sarah Allison Auditorium. We, of course, welcome those who are joining us on our Heritage.org website and those that will be joining us on the C-SPAN network. For those in-house, we would ask that courtesy check that our mobile devices have been silenced or turned off. Sorry, no Facebooking during this discussion, please. And, of course, for those watching online and in the future, you're welcome to send questions or comments at any time simply emailing speaker at heritage.org. Leading our discussion and conversation today is Klon Kitchen. Mr. Kitchen serves as Senior Fellow for Technology, National Security, and Science in our Douglas and Sarah Allison Center for Foreign Policy. Please join me in welcoming Klon. Klon? Good morning, and welcome to uh, the Heritage Foundation. Facebook has, you know, I think this is too close. Facebook has more than 2 billion active monthly users, and approximately 1.5 billion users log in every day. And there are some estimates that say every minute of every day, there are uh, 510,000 comments, 293,000 status updates, 136,000 photos posted to the social network. That's every minute of every day. And so Facebook has actually come to define how many communicate uh, with their family, how they plan and share their social lives. And for many, particularly those overseas with offerings like um, free basic service, it's increasingly how people are actually getting online in the first place. And so Facebook's influence and role in the lives of its users is uh, growing. And with this growth of influence comes a great deal of responsibility. And Facebook's understanding of these responsibilities appears to be evolving. And to help us better understand that evolution, we are very fortunate to have Ms. Monica Bickert join us today. She is Facebook's head of product policy and counterterrorism. She and her team manage the, the policies that govern uh, what content can be posted, as well as how advertisers and developers are able to engage and use the product in the network. Prior to joining Facebook, uh, Monica was a resident legal advisor at the U.S. Embassy in Thailand, as well as an assistant U.S. attorney in D.C., as well as in Chicago. She has a B.A. in economics and English from Rice University and a J.D. from Harvard Law. Please welcome Monica Bicker. Thanks. It's good to be here. Uh, so, Monica, real quick, but before we kind of get into the specific questions, uh, just to kind of set the, the stage and help people understand uh, your expertise and, and, and where you're coming from, 
talk a little bit about you, your background, and then also the team that you're managing and what you guys are doing. Like Quan mentioned, before I came to Facebook, I was at the US Justice Department, where I spent more than a decade as a federal criminal prosecutor. And when I came to Facebook, I came to Facebook. team that manages how we respond to government requests for user data. The FBI is investigating a crime, and they, they give Facebook a search warrant um, asking for account information. I took over our team that manages the policies about five and a half years ago. And since then, that team has continued to expand, where now we have a team that manages the content standards, a team that manages the external engagement we do around those standards. Those standards are constantly evolving, and a lot of that includes reaching out to safety groups and uh, freedom of expression academics around the world, so a stakeholder engagement team. We have a strategic response team. Their job is anytime there's, uh, let's say there's a terror attack or there's some sort of natural disaster that has led to a lot of casualties, their job is to understand events on the ground and make sure that we are prepared to deal with any content that we might see posted on Facebook as a result. Um, so a lot of different teams and, and some uh, subject matter experts as well. We have a, a team that focuses on child safety, for instance, and maintains a lot of relationships with uh, safety experts around the world. Separately, about two years, actually almost exactly two years ago, we created our counterterrorism team at Facebook that I also manage. This team is... Uh, not just policy people, we have engineers who are designing tools to help us find and review potential terror content. We have lawyers who are helping us uh, proactively send credible threats that we might find to law enforcement and also review uh, legal process that we get from law enforcement. Uh, and we have others such as uh, academics. We have West Point's former director of West Point's Counterterrorism Research Center, uh, we have um, Aaron Saltman with a, a PhD in extremist organizations. So trying to bring some of that expertise onto that team and help us also maintain relationships with those who are working in this field outside of Facebook is what we're doing uh, on the counterterrorism team. So I think the way I would like to do this is I'd, I'd like to ask just a couple of kind of big picture questions about how Facebook is thinking about things right now. And then I want to go deep, deeper into the content policy issue uh, and, and pull the string on a couple of issues. So uh, just to begin, when, when Mark was testifying here recently, um, one of the key themes that, that he was, was sounding again and again was that Facebook had not previously taken a broad enough view of its responsibilities. Um, and that it intended to broaden that understanding going forward. You've been at Facebook for a little over six years, which makes you an, an old-timer. Help us, what was, the, what was the narrower view, and, and, and what's, what's changing now? Certainly, the company has certainly grown, um, both in terms of numbers, people who are using the service, and, uh, and people who work at the company, but also in terms of just the approach we take. If I think back to where we were as a company when I joined, and we had about 2,000 employees at that time, uh, the engineers who were working on these issues, on, on developing new products and new features, they were like you would find in any smaller startup. These were people who had great ideas, 
and uh, would not necessarily think about how the ideas could be used or could be abused by bad actors. And I remember back then having conversations with engineers who were launching or building new products or new features. And we would say, okay, we need to make sure, as a policy team, we need to make sure that we have uh, safety mechanisms in place, that people can report abuse after you launch your feature, and that we have policies that will govern that. And they would say, oh, I don't, I don't think anybody's going to use this for, for bad reasons. Um, and that was, there, there's just sort of um, a natural idealism that comes with uh, people who are building new products and envisioning the, the wonderful ways that they can be used and not necessarily seeing the bad ways they can, that they can be used. But as a company, over the years, I think we've, uh, we've really evolved. My team, if I think back five years ago, we would, uh, we would proactively find the engineers and say, let's have a conversation about this. Now, this is all very much a part of design. There's, uh, there is a philosophy of safety by design where when engineers are even envisioning new products or new features for the first time, they are thinking, how do we make sure this is done consistent uh, with the type of community that we're all trying to build? So on my team now, we actually have people who specialize just in new products and features, and they work very closely with the product team. So does Facebook have like a red team, like a group of folks whose job is just to think of terrible, terrible ways to use the tools that you're using? Well, my team's job is really not only do we try to think, based on our own experience, I mean, as a, as a federal prosecutor, there are certain abuse types that I've seen a lot of and that I would naturally think of. And we, we try to build a team that has that type of expertise. So if I think about the people that are on my team, I have a woman who was a rape crisis counselor. I have another... Uh, I have a, a man who was a child exploitation prosecutor. Um, we have people with subject matter expertise in different types of abuse, and they, they bring that to the table. But really important to this is maintaining relationships with safety organizations around the world. There are literally hundreds of groups that we talk to on a regular basis, and part of it is you tell us if there is something that you think we're not getting right or if there's some new trend. Sometimes these trends are small. It will be in Brazil, I mean, this is a real example, in, in Brazil, there is a new trend around uh, self-harm, and it's a challenge that young people are sharing with one another. And we want to make sure if there's something like that, that we become aware of it as quickly as possible and put the right policies in place. So in your title is the term counterterrorism. Right. And maybe that sounds normal now, but I remember a time when, when, when that would be especially pe peculiar. Um, I, I'm sure in the post-9-11 world, as, as terrorist propaganda kind of began to spread online, uh, that became a, a core mission of what you've done specifically, and I know you guys have, have made pretty significant advancements in identifying terrorist propaganda. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Yesterday, actually, if you go to our, uh, it's in our newsroom, right? If, yeah, if you go to, if you go to newsroom.fb.com, uh, you'll find the post that we put out on the most recent data in, um, in the last quarter, in Q1 of 2018. We took down 1.9 million posts for violating our terrorism policies. We took action on those posts. Sometimes the action, if it was, for instance, um, somebody sharing a photo of the ISIS flag, but they're doing so to condemn it or to, to raise awareness, in those cases, we would actually leave the content out. But the vast majority of this content that we, um, that we actioned, we removed from Facebook. And we actually did so in 99% of cases, we found the content before anybody had flagged it for us. So we did that using... Um, primarily technical tools like image matching that helps us identify that sort of content at the, type of, at the time of upload. 
we've come a long way in the past couple of years. If I think where we were a few years ago, first of all, you're right, when, when, um, when I first added to my title product policy and counterterrorism, I, I, there was a lot of surprise from people outside Facebook. They would see my business card and they would say, you have a counterterrorism team? Um, and I would say, we do indeed. It's something that we are seeing terror groups uh, really try to do. They're trying to use social media and we don't want them on Facebook. And we actually don't want them anywhere on social media, which is why it's not just about uh, what we do at Facebook, it's also about what we do as industry. So when I think about how far we've come in the past couple of years, part of it is those technical advances. We're now identifying so much of this content at the time of upload uh, or shortly thereafter. I think our median time for takedown of those 1.9 million posts was less than a minute. Um, but we're also working very broadly with industry. So whereas three years ago, this was really what Facebook is doing to try to remove terror propaganda. Now, we've launched the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism. Uh, that's an initiative we, it was a formalization of a bunch of social media companies that have been working together for maybe the past two years on sharing best practices and technical tools for removing terror content. And last June, we uh, announced this, this group that is committed to working together to keep terror propaganda off and terrorists off our sites. That means sharing technical tools. So for instance, we have a uh, hashing technology that we built that allows us, this is what I mean by hashing technology, it allows us to take a video, let's say you have um, a beheading video, you run it through the software, the software converts that to what we call a digital fingerprint. I love how I'm trying to sound like an engineer. I'm so not an engineer. But um, it converts it to basically a numeric uh, string, a digital fingerprint, and then we store that in a database that the other companies who participate have access to. And any company that then wants to keep that particular video from hitting its site can take that hash, and if somebody tries to upload that video to their site, they'll catch it. They can look at the video and say, yep, this is a video that violates our policies and not allow it on their site. Um, and so we contribute hashes to that database, and we have tens of thousands of hashes in that database now, and other companies contribute as well, and, and uh, we get the benefit um, from their expertise as well. So it's, it's really industry working together with much better technical tools. Questions I have, kind of thinking about the challenge more broadly, is in the same way that there's been this migration of counterterrorism responsibilities into the private sector. So it, there wasn't long ago when that was a government function. CT was a government function. And now because of the, the presence of material on your platform and, and people being able to use it, a portion of that burden migrated to you. And you guys have responded by building this team. Do you have a sense of, of, of other national security priorities kind of beginning to migrate into the purview of Facebook? So when we think about... Um, cybersecurity generally, but then foreign influence operations and things like that. I mean, that's a real problem for you. Yes, uh, we're, we're very focused on, and this is not just U.S. either. I should say, uh, for those of you who don't know, most people who use Facebook are outside the U.S. More than 85% more than of people using Facebook are outside the United States. So when we think about things like combating disinformation or uh, making sure that uh, we, are, we are helping with election integrity and that uh, the things that you know, we see many, many policymakers use Facebook for great reasons around elections to really reach out to constituents and really connect with them. But we've also seen that people will try to, to use those same tools to uh, interfere with elections. 
And so making sure that we are getting that right, not just here, but with upcoming elections in Brazil, in India, in Mexico, that's very important to us. Sense of government, if not reliance, but certainly engagement on these issues with you. Like, so I think one of the questions I have is: Is the federal government's ability to engage these issues is that being disrupted somewhat because of where the activities are occurring on, on private networks and things like that? And are you feeling kind of a a, um, a more direct engagement or push from government for assistance on these issues? Back to prosecutorial days here. I think even, even way back when, when I was a prosecutor, there were things that we could do alone as a government, but for most things, there were different roles for different, uh, different people to play. And I think that's true in this space as well. For, for counterterrorism, for instance, we're a piece of that puzzle. There's removing propaganda. There's doing our part to identify credible threats and to quickly respond to law enforcement in, uh, in the wake of a terror attack or during their investigation. So uh, we're, we're an important component of that, and we acknowledge that. But then there, there are also insights that governments will have that we won't have. They will have uh, intelligence. They will sometimes have a broader picture that we won't have. And that I think that translates into these other areas as well. So when we think about election integrity, it's there are steps we're taking within the company to ensure greater transparency, to ensure that we are, for instance, taking down more fake accounts We've seen that fake accounts tend to be disproportionately responsible for bad content. Those are often the bad actors. And our machine learning and technical tools to remove those accounts have gotten far, far better. So uh, in advance of the French election and the German election this year, we removed tens of thousands of accounts before those elections. They might not have been election related, but that's not the point. We knew that they were more likely to be contributing to uh, bad content or, or abusive uh, content or disinformation we might see on the service, so we wanted to remove them. So there's what we're doing internally at Facebook. Then there's what we're doing to engage with those other pieces of the puzzle. Uh, for instance, we're now, we've, we've launched, a, we announced this a few weeks ago, a research initiative where we will be partnering with uh, broad academics and researchers who will be looking at the overall impact of Facebook on elections and social media on elections so we can understand that and get ahead of it. And then we also are engaging with civil society and, where appropriate, electoral commissions in countries around the world so we can understand what are the threats that you think you're going to be facing with your election and how do we make sure that we're responding to those quickly. So finally, before we transition, um, would, you'd mentioned how in, in, in the early days engineers were really just thinking about the cool applications and how that could be uh, just improve people's lives and you know, encourage human thriving. Now there's a there's a there's a fuller approach to development. Would you say that some of the the techno idealism of the early days is now giving way to a type of of realism at the at kind of the, the senior leadership ranks of, of Facebook? I've always in in my time at Facebook, I've always seen a serious uh, commitment from our senior leaders to understanding exactly how we're impacting the world. Um, and the, the, the conversations that we have on these issues often include senior leadership. So when we're thinking about, for instance, how to, how to build our counterterrorism team, those aren't decisions that, that I'm making where I'm saying, I think we ought to invest here, I think we ought to do this. Those are conversations that do include senior leadership. So that attention has been there. Um, I think what's changed is at the, at the broad 
level, not just at Facebook, but I think in, in Silicon Valley and in these social media companies generally, there is just more of an awareness that these tools might be abused. There are always going to be bad actors who are going to use good technology and try to use it for bad purposes. That's led to two very good things. One is companies investing more and getting it right. Two is companies being willing to work together. Five years ago, I, I don't think that happened a lot. Now, not just in the terrorism space, but in other areas as well, if uh, there's something that we're getting wind of, there's this, there's a, a photo of a child being abused or a video of, that's, that's circulating, one of the first things I would do is reach out to YouTube and Twitter and tell them about it, and they would do the same with me. So there's, there's a lot of cross-industry collaboration now um, on safety issues that wasn't there five years ago. Something similar exists for like foreign influence things, like, hey, we think we've got a, uh, an inauthentic account that's pushing this narrative, and you then inform other companies about the, that type of Starting to, uh, we're starting to talk more about, for instance, election integrity and, and disinformation as an industry. A couple things that, that we've had for some time in the area of cybersecurity, which uh, disinformation and, inf and influence operations are um, a part of. We have had some collaborative uh, efforts before. One that we just announced is called Tech Accord. And this is a group of, well, gosh, when we launched it last week, it was 31 companies, but I think it's actually... It's grown. A couple others have joined. We're in the 30s somewhere. But um, this is a group of companies that have come together and said, we're going to take a stand on uh, protecting users from uh, any type of cyber threats. We're going to commit to not helping governments with any offensive type of cyber threats. And we're going to commit to working together. And there's also some framework in place. We have at Facebook since 2015 hosted something called the Threat Exchange. And that is an, an API um, for companies to share information that they have about those who are trying to attack their infrastructures. This isn't just social media companies. It's actually a pretty broad group of industries. But the idea is we become aware of somebody who's trying to attack the infrastructure, whether it's a, a state actor or non-state actor. It doesn't matter. This is, this is a threat to the infrastructure. We put it in threat exchange, and other companies who are part of threat exchange can access that and use it to keep their site safe. Uh, okay, so let's transition then to content policy in the, in the specific. Um, I'm going to ask you a simple question, and then as you answer that, it would be helpful to uh, explain some of the, uh, well, the announcement that you guys have just made this morning as it regards that. So um, hate speech, what is it? Hate speech. There's not a universal definition of hate speech. At Facebook, uh, we do have a definition, which is we don't allow speech that attacks a person or a group of people based on a sensitive characteristic like race, religion, uh, sexual orientation, or gender. There's a, there's a longer list, and you can find it in our policies. And if, uh, if I can do a, a plug for the new policies, uh, we have our policies for what you can post on Facebook are called our community standards. We've had them for years. They, once upon a time, were pretty high level. Don't bully anybody. Don't harass anybody. Don't post uh, threats of violence. And then in, in 2015, we launched a more detailed version of those policies. Today, we released all our internal details about how we enforce these policies. So if you go to our community standards, which you can, you can even if you're not on Facebook, you, these are publicly available. You can go to uh, facebook.com slash community standards and you'll find them. Uh, you'll see our values, how, how we think about these issues at the highest level. Then you'll see... Here's what we mean when we say don't post harassment or don't, don't post hate speech. 
And then if you want, you can click more and you'll actually see the guidance that we give our reviewers, the rules that they have to enforce. What I mean by our reviewers is we, we have a team of people that are based around the world that review potential violations of our content standards. They're reviewing content that has either been flagged by people who are on Facebook. You're on Facebook and you see a page or a group or a profile or a photo that violates, that you think violates our standards. You can report any of that to us. And if you do, it, it will go to these community operations reviewers. Um, or we also use some of our technical tools to try to proactively find violating content. And if we find that content, sometimes the technical tool is good enough that it can make the decision on its own, like if it's a beheading video and we recognize it. But in most cases, the technical tool will say, this is maybe a violation and it will go to those content reviewers. So these are real people, more than 7,500 of them, based around the world, reviewing this content. And in order to make sure we're doing that consistently, if you report a piece of content, we need to make sure it, we get to the same decision, whether the person who's reviewing it is based in India or based in Texas. And so that's why we have to have these very, very granular uh, sets of objective guidance. That's now all public. So when I say that uh, when we define hate speech as an attack uh, based on somebody's sensitive characteristic, you can go and see what are those sensitive characteristics. What does Facebook mean by an attack? How do we treat different attacks? It's all in there. So let's, let's I want to kind of really flesh this out a little bit. So um, if someone says online, Christians are bigots, is that hate speech? In some places in the world it would be, in other places it would not. On Facebook we would remove it. Um, yeah. And so I'll talk, there's, there's three, we, we have three tiers of hate speech. And those tiers are based on the severity of the attack. And for the most severe attacks, we have the broadest protections. For the least severe attacks, we have narrower protections. And I should also say two things. One is we know this isn't the only way to define hate speech. In fact, this is a, it's a really challenging area. People have really different ideas around the world about what hate speech is. This doesn't match, for instance, European law or Australian law. Uh, we understand that. Um, so there will be cases where people will disagree with us. Uh, the second thing I'll say is that these standards continue to evolve. Our hate speech policy three years ago had one tier of attacks, we didn't dif differentiate, and one breadth of protection. We didn't expand or narrow it. Now, um, as you'll see if you read our standards, uh, the new standards we launched today, uh, for tier one, that would be something like uh, somebody who is engaging in um, suggesting that violence against a particular group would be okay. Even if it's not a credible threat, we would remove credible threats of violence. But if somebody is just saying it would be great if these people were hanged or um, that, something like that, violent speech, we will remove that for a broad, uh, very broadly, meaning we'll remove it if somebody mentions your sensitive characteristic, even if they also mention a non-sensitive characteristic. So if they attack, um, uh, you mentioned Christians. Well, if they also said uh, Christian teachers or Christian taxi drivers, if they're using that, uh, those most, th that most aggressive language under tier one, we would remove that as hate speech. When you go down to tier three, Tier three is called for segregation or exclusion. And for that sort of language, which is not the sort of hot speech or the speech that, that um, might be used to, uh, to really inflame passions, it tends to be a lot more towards the political speech. To make sure that we're not removing political speech, we have very narrow protections there. So if somebody wanted, for instance, to discuss um, uh, immigration policy, we want to make sure that we're protecting that. 
So there, we don't apply that rule. If, if somebody mentions a non-protected characteristic, then there are no hate speech protections there. And we do make sure that for things like immigration-related speech that, that uh, we're allowing that speech. So um, I'll, give you, I'll give you two potential posts, and you tell me if there's a distinction in how you, how you would engage them. So on the one hand, uh, you have an individual who posts um, a, uh, this gay bake or this, this Christian baker is a bigot, don't go to their store. So a call for segregation. And then on the other hand, um, someone says, this mosque teaches hate, stay away. Second one would, would be allowed. Um, and here's why. Our distinction is if you're attacking people, we will remove it. If you are attacking countries or ideas or institutions or religions, we will allow it. Uh, why do we draw the line that way? Uh, Facebook is fundamentally about uh, bringing people together and, and helping people to uh, connect with each other. And we know they won't do that if they don't think it's a safe place. So when we see attacks that are targeting people, we will remove those and consider them hate speech. But we want people to be able to engage in political speech, and that is going to include speech that some people will find offensive. Some criticisms of, of countries or of religions uh, will be upsetting to people, and that's why we, we give them controls. You don't have to follow this page. You can block this person if you don't want to see this person's content. But we think it's important to preserve the ability for people to have those hard conversations. It's important to stipulate, too, that Facebook is a private company. And so your relationship with the First Amendment is, is different than, say, the government's is. And so I, right. I think a group like Heritage under, understands that. But and, you, and not only does the, the First Amendment not apply to us, so that, that's certainly right, but uh, we also recognize that we, this, this line we're drawing doesn't always get it right. Uh, when we're, we get millions of reports every week of potential violations, and we have technical tools that are identifying other potential violations. When you're talking about uh, enforcing policies on that volume of content and you want to do it consistently and make sure you've got the right policy enforcement, whether the person's in India or Texas, like I said earlier, then uh, you need to have these well-defined lines. It means you will always have edge cases. When I've had this situation before, we'll sit in a room and we'll look at a photo and we'll say, well, gosh, as we all look at this, it feels pretty much like hate speech, but under our policies... It actually is just on, on this other side of the line where, where we would leave it up. Um, those conversations happen. And then we, and we make refinements and we try to make our, our lines better. But um, I guess my point here is it's never going to be a perfect rule that pleases all people all the time. What we want to do is be very clear about where the rule is. That's why we're releasing these standards. And then listen to the feedback that comes in and, and continue to, to get better and evolve over time. So in, in several parts of the conversation, both today and in Mark's testimony, um, the, the, the reference was made to safe. Like one of the key objectives is for users to feel safe using the platform. And in one sense, that's very easy to understand and agree with. I mean, you, you want people not to feel endangered uh, when, when, when they're on the platform. But in an age where universities and, and, and other organizations are deliberately stifling free speech in an effort to establish safe spaces. This gets a little more complicated. And, and I think actually Senator Sass brought this up when he uh, was questioning uh, Mark. And he just said, you know, can you imagine a scenario in the future where, say, um, advocacy, pro-life advocacy on your platform might be deemed hate speech because users identify that as causing them you know, psychic or emotional harm? 
And you know, I want to read Mark's response because I, I don't know that it was as strong as maybe some of us had anticipated. He, he just said, I certainly would not want that to be the case. And that doesn't exactly rule it out. And so I think conservatives in general who, you know, rightly or wrongly, there, there is a perception of feeling um, marginalized sometimes on social media. I think they're importing a lot of social commentary into that. But, but it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a broad feeling. And so what are Facebook's competing values when it considers issues of free speech on its platform? And, and specifically, what would you say to you know, conservative audiences like this as they think about that? It's, I, I would say it's very important for us to, uh, to allow different perspectives on even very controversial and upsetting issues. I'll give you an example. We have this meeting every two weeks called our Content Standards Forum where we, we debate, uh, not really debate, we, we consider potential updates to our policies. And those are things that have been flagged by some internal team or some external group. We're seeing this issue in this part of the world. Maybe we should change our policy. We'll look at data. We'll talk to civil society and experts around the world, and we'll consider options. One of the ones that we looked at maybe a month or so ago, maybe a few weeks ago, was what to do with photos of fetuses aborted fetuses. It's a controversial topic. We know that uh, people, some people will view this as very upsetting. Other people will view this as important political speech. We reached out to groups who were both pro-choice and pro-life and said, uh, how, can we, how can we make this work? And we decided we will leave up that content um, unless somebody is sharing it to, to celebrate or, or uh, you know, in a sadistic way where they're sort of uh, mocking death because um, we have other policies about that. But basically our decision was this is important speech and we need to protect it. Um, we are a long way from, uh, from policies that would take down unpopular beliefs. That's, that's not what this is about. Facebook is a place where we want people to be able to express very diverse views. We think a lot of good can come from that. We think there's, uh, when people have the chance to see how others think, uh, that's a very good thing. At the same time, we know not everybody wants to be a part of those conversations. And that's why we give people the tools I mentioned earlier. If you don't want to engage with a certain person or a certain type of content, you don't have to. Yeah, I think just to kind of put a bow on that, I, I think uh, a, a lot of people across the political spectrum, but I think it is expressed particularly in the conservative uh, worldview of, of not necessarily feeling like that's impending right now, but it not, but it, it not being out of the realm of, of, of evolving toward that. So there's, there's, there's conversations that I think were quite normal in the public sphere five years ago that, that are now, and I want to be careful here, that, um, that I think there's still open debate on in terms of the, 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 its place in public society. Um, but now they're, they're largely just verboten. Um, and so I think that's just a, an, open, an open issue for folks. It's a reason that we talk to the free speech academics that we do around the world, um, because this is a concern, as you know, not just in the United States, but uh, something that, that we see in a lot of places. And, and we also are seeing the evolution of certain laws um, around, around speech. So just to be very clear, our standards are not based on European laws or anybody's laws. Our standards are about uh, making Facebook a safe place, giving people control to, to not see content they don't want to see, but our standards are about making Facebook, making Facebook a safe place. If something violates the law, in a country, then that, that government can come to us and ask us to restrict that speech in that country itself, 
and we have a process whereby we'll look at the law, we'll see if it's consistent with international norms. Sometimes we can push back, sometimes we can't. Um, and sometimes we end up blocking, for instance, the German hate speech law, it's much broader than our hate speech definition. They, uh, it is a crime there to deny the Holocaust. So if we become aware of that content in Germany, the German government says that is illegal, you need to block it in Germany. We do block it in Germany, it's unavailable there. But it is available to people in the United States. Um, so I think what we'll do now is we'll start to turn to questions from the audience. So if you have a question, just raise your hand. If you would, uh, two quick provisos there. Uh, one, please no speeches. Please be uh, quick in your question. Uh, and two, if you would just identify yourself and maybe who you represent. This is fine. Carl Zabo with NetChoice. We expect platforms to be able to remove objectionable content to protect users or you know, take down terrorist speech, for example. And in the United States, we have Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which allows you to take down speech but not become liable for moderating all speech or all content. Are there similar laws in the world? And if not, is that something you'd like to see where private platforms can take down objectionable content without suddenly absorbing liability for all content moderation? See, we see some degree of that, of, of equivalence to Section 230, um, for instance, in Europe, but it's, it's not quite the same. But the one thing I'll say is because we are, we are based in the United States, Section 230 is really fundamental to our operation. Um, that when we get requests from governments to block speech for being illegal in India, uh, for instance, or, or other countries around the world, it's, it is sometimes a, a, it's a different kind of question. The way we interact with their laws is sometimes based on um, making sure that we are respecting the expectations of the local community and also making sure that we continue, can continue to provide a service to people in that community. So there are times uh, that... For instance, if we, if we don't comply with laws in a particular country, that service, Facebook would not be able to operate. So it becomes, it's not just about, uh, you know, in, in, in the U.S., Section 230 is fundamental, but in other places, there's a, there's a broad spectrum of laws and, and considerations that, um, that we have. Gabriel Joseph of Liftable Media, ma'am. Thanks for your talk. Uh, we have Western Journal, and in January, we were the fourth most engaged uh, publication on Facebook, right behind Fox News and others. You did your algorithm change. In the succeeding months, we went from number four as a conservative site down to number 22, whereas CNN went from number 16 to number one. Fox had been number one engaged for almost seven years. They went to number three. Uh, Steve Scalise uh, uh, showed a chart when Mark was testifying up on Capitol Hill about how the independently conservative sites had reduced their traffic by 14% since January, whereas liberal-leaning sites had increased their traffic by 17%. Um, what happened with the algorithm, number one? And number two, would you be willing to publish, just like you did with your content, what you consider whitelisted publishers as opposed to blacklisted publishers? I haven't followed that issue. And I should say this is... You know, I don't, I don't manage that issue because uh, my issue is the, the content policies, but, it, but I do know about it. Um, so we, when you come to Facebook and you go to your news feed, which is the, where you, you see most content, 
Um, there are two options there. You can just choose to see that content in reverse chronological order, or you can see what has been um, surfaced to you based on factors like content that's going viral, content that has been most recently posted, content from sources that you tend to interact with the most, and so forth. That is our Facebook algorithm. And uh, back in January, January, we made a change to that algorithm where we said people are going to see more content posted by family and friends, which necessarily means they're going to see less content that, uh, as a percentage that is posted by organizations like news organizations. Around that same time, we came out with another announcement saying we're testing something in the United States that uh, looks at a survey results from a broad degree of people across the political spectrum saying which publications have the broadest trust, which publications do you trust. And the goal of this is rather than doing a popularity contest of which publication do you think it's best, it was looking to see across the political spectrum what are the... Um, what are the media organizations that people tend to think are reliable, even if they're way over here or even if they're way over there. And then those organizations are going to see uh, increased visibility in that newsfeed algorithm. That's something we're testing. I don't think we've gotten it right yet. It's also something that um, we're starting off locally. We understand that the ramifications are huge to, to media companies. I, and, and we will definitely follow up and, and take your card and, and make that happen. Um, this, even when we're running tests and even when they're limited in scope, we know the ramifications are huge. And, uh, and we want to make sure that, yeah, we want to make sure we're hearing that. You know, we, we kicked something off um, back in January of 2017, yeah, um, our, which is called our uh, Facebook Journalism Project. And that, the whole point of that initiative is working more closely with publishers to understand how can social media work for them. Because just for the entire journalism industry, social media has been, it has really required um, some massive changes and it hasn't all been good. And so uh, we're trying to hear what we can do to do better. I don't think we have it all figured out yet, but I look forward to continuing the conversation. Bill Braniff from START at the University of Maryland. Uh, we're at Terrorism Research Center. Um, in the blog that you put out yesterday, the Hard Questions blog, uh, you define terrorism as uh, any non-governmental organization, non organization that engages in premeditated acts of violence uh, in order to intimidate uh, a civilian population or a government um, for an ideological goal. So intimidation is the um, sort of the intent behind the terrorist behavior. Uh, and I wonder if you thought about broadening that definition beyond intimidation, because terrorist organizations also seek to elicit angry responses, polarized responses. Intimidation is only one of many emotional responses they're trying to elicit. And most of those other emotional responses can also play into the hands of the terrorist, like a government overreaction. Um, and so I just wonder if you considered broadening the definition beyond intimidation to accommodate things like polarization and uh, inciting a heavy-handed military response. Thank you. If it's violence for a political objective, our, our 
our intention is to remove that. And um, you know, our, so our view is that it, that would be sort of indirectly, the things you mentioned would be covered under indirect intimidation, but we're totally open to, to um, you know, looking at the wording of that and making sure we're covering it well. But if it's, if it's a non state actor, Hi, Jonathan Cannon with Americans Tax Reform. Um, so during the hearing, one of the things that uh, Mr. Zuckerberg was talking about was using AI and other tools to kind of automate the process. So as technology kind of grows and develops, what role do you see that playing in terms of how we look at content, but also on a grander scale, like you know, implications going forward and other potential policy concerns that could emerge? Uh we use it to help us identify potential violations, and we use it to help us streamline our review process and, and get, get content to the people who have the right language and subject matter expertise. We don't use it, we do it in, in a few ways, but we, we, prim we don't primarily use it to make actual decisions. It's flagging content for review, and it's helping us do that review. see more situations where we can use the technology to actually make the decisions without it having to go to a person. Um, the couple areas where we're doing that right now are things like image matching. So I mentioned earlier that we have now this video hashing technology that can stop beheading videos at time of upload. That's technically, I'm sure, that, I'm sure engineers wouldn't necessarily agree with me saying it this way, but that's technically simple compared to a lot of the artificial intelligence that, that we're trying to build. So that's an area where the machines are accurate enough they can make those decisions because they're actually more accurate than people. Um, but if you think about something like using uh, technology to try to identify a credible threat of violence or to uh, try to identify harassment uh, or bullying or hate speech, those areas are inherently so contextual. You could use, I, I, could, um, I could write a post where I am insulting somebody, attacking somebody with an ethnic slur, and I use all sorts of words in that post. And then I could write the same post where I say, today on the subway, somebody said this to me, and it made me feel awful. And I could basically use the same words in that post. And so uh, finding technology that will help us understand that context, is that's really hard. We're investing in it, but it's going to take a lot of time. In the meantime, we are using technical tools to identify those potential violations, and then our community operations reviewers do that. One of the key points um, that you brought up previously was um, talk about a little bit about the review that goes on for individual content moderators. Uh, you have a regular review process to kind of assess how good they're doing versus, with your community standards. That's right. So uh, thousands of reviewers, millions of pieces of content reported to us every week. We know we're going to have mistakes. Even if we're 99% accurate, we're going to have many mistakes every day. And so uh, we have some controls in place right now to improve accuracy, and then we have some that we just announced today. What we already have in place, we have quality audits of every reviewer, every policy type, every week. And what that means is we re-review, sometimes double, sometimes triple review, of a subset of content that each content reviewer has decided. So we can see, is she getting the decisions right, um, or, or does she need some retraining in this area, or is she just not up to the job? Uh, that's the way that we do that quality assessment. We then have a smaller um, but deeper review of a review of a smaller subset, but a deeper review where uh, we're actually looking at 
all the surrounding context and really digging in to understand if we made the right policy enforcement choice based on the overall spirit and intention of the policy. Um, and then finally, what we announced today is that we are now going to allow people to appeal decisions that we've made on individual pieces of content. In the, in the past year, uh, leading up to today, you could review, actually longer than that, but um, you, could, you could ask us to review our decisions if we've removed a page or a group or a profile. And we would revisit that and we would take another look. But you couldn't do that for individual posts. Now, if we've removed your photo or your post, you can appeal it to us. Somebody new will look at it, and, and we'll make sure they have the additional context to go back and look and see why the original decision was made and if we need to change that. Um, and we're also going to make that available if you've reported something to us. You said this is harassment. We said, no, it's not. We're going to leave it up. Then you can ask for us to take a second look at that. That's something that we're going to have to roll out in stages. Obviously, it's going to require us hiring more people and uh, building an infrastructure that will allow us to do this really quickly and get it right. But we're launching it as of today. As, as, as AI becomes a bigger part of that going forward, that type of review and kind of double and triple checking becomes even more important, just to avoid any kind of black yes. box scenario in the future. That's right. And, and already, as we're using technology now, uh, our, one of the ways I think about this is, is this technology more accurate than a person? There are some times when we know it is. In terms of recognizing, for instance, child sexual abuse imagery, machines are better. We, we can use the um, hashes that we have and use image matching software, and the machines get it right. And so uh, that is actually safer. But when we're thinking about things that are more contextual, as we start to use technology more, that review is going to become really important. Ma, I'm a contributor to the Washington Examiner. Um, thank you for your comments. Um, I'm wondering um, whether you guys do any sort of training um, or whether you guys have any thoughts about the um, sort of the political biases of your employees, given that obviously a lot of the content filtering is done by human beings. And um, if you recall, of you know, when President Obama was in office, there was that very memorable moment when, a, um, when he went to Facebook and a Facebook employee stood up and asked him, uh, President Obama, will you raise my taxes? And there are lots and lots of instances where our impression of Facebook, not just the company itself, but the people who work for Facebook, um, predominantly lean one way politically. And I think that's what makes a lot of people concerned because if the people who are filtering the content and deciding what should go up and what should come down are people who might naturally consider a certain type of speech that's very legitimate to, let's say, conservative, to be hate speech, then it becomes highly problematic. And so I'm just wondering, in terms of intellectual diversity, in terms of letting your, you know, I know you guys have very impressive people, but someone with three degrees from Yale working at Facebook might automatically consider a lot of what goes on in this building to be hate speech. Um, and that person might be somebody who works on your content policy. So I'm just wondering what sort of... Um, you know, what sort of, of safeguards do you guys have and what sort of improvements do you guys plan to make in that area? Have to, we have to take bias seriously. There's no question. Um, first, because we, we have to get the lines enforced properly, and second, because we need consistency or the enforcement process just falls apart. 
So um, in terms of what kind of training we do and what kind of controls we have in place, that audit process that we just described is one way of seeing if the reviewers are complying with these very detailed um, and granular guidelines. Um, also, this team is not, like if you look at my team, my team is based in 11 offices around the world. Uh, they have contact with people on both sides of the aisle very regularly. That stakeholder engagement team that I mentioned, their job is to make sure that when we're, we're building perspectives into our policies and that granular guidance that we're writing for the reviewers, that we've looked at, it's not, this is not always just US and making sure we have conservative and liberal. Sometimes this is, uh, you know, it's in Ukraine and, or it's in India. And you have very strongly held opinions about uh, what's going on in a particular country and we need to make sure we're considering both perspectives. We do that by engaging with academics and experts that are on both sides. The example that I mentioned earlier about fetuses, prime example of that. It was, what do the, the pro-life groups say? What do the pro-choice groups say? How can we find something that actually is going to allow room for both? Something I've heard you say previously, that, that, that the reason why your community standards are so granular is to help weight against. Absolutely. And we did it when I first came uh, into this role. You know, our, our standards around nudity are... Um, very granular. And some people internally said, why does it have to be that way? This seems a little silly. We'd probably get to a better place if we told the reviewers, just if it is pornography, remove it. If it is artistic or if it is something for like scientific knowledge or education, leave it up. And so we actually did a test internally and it showed conclusively that people do not agree. Um, same thing with hate speech. People will not agree if you say, remove it if it's offensive about somebody's religion. And so instead we write these very detailed, this qualifies as an attack, comparing somebody to an animal uh, qualifies as an attack, criticizing uh, a religion does not qualify as an attack, and we have this whole approach that you can see now in our standards. This is our way of taking that bias out of that process and holding it, reviewers accountable to those policies. Should I repeat that for the? I, I'm just so. The, so the question it, yeah. was the question: Who reviews the reviewers? As right. you try to correct for bias. So, so the process for setting those standards is is by my team and that does the external stakeholder everything I just described, where we make sure that we're we're doing it from both sides and we have this global. A team of people that are based in the 11 offices. As far as who holds the reviewers accountable, that's not just in the review teams. These, these quality audits and the ground truth review where we dig deeper um, and the appeals process, th th that process is managed by, by multiple teams to make sure that we're getting it right. As soon as they use, you just release them. Yeah, the right. So it's right. open to the public and the public can then engage them. So if you go through those and see something you don't like. And we're actually having um, public, public sessions, I think... Um, I think we are having one in Washington. Yeah, we're having one in Washington, D.C., but we're having these around the world that are designed as feedback sessions. People are going to see the, implementate, or the, the way that we implement and enforce our policies now. We want people to read that. If there are things they see where they say, well, this just isn't right or you're getting it wrong, um, we want them to be able to reach out to us, and that's what the, the public sessions are going to be about. So we're going to have to conclude, but thank you very much for just a, a wonderful conversation, and please say thank you to Ms. Pickett for me. Thank you. Thanks for coming. And that's the end of our session. Thank you.